Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. And we welcome not only all who are here in our gymnasium for our Bible class this morning, but all who are joining us via KFUO, 8.50 a.m., and worldwide at kfuo.org. Today we're going to be taking a look at the lessons for next Sunday, the assigned scripture readings for the second Sunday in Advent, even though this is the first Sunday in Advent. So let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, with eager anticipation, we gather to study your word, knowing that in this season we also eagerly anticipate the second coming of your Son, Jesus Christ not in meekness and humility as he came the first time in order to go to the cross, suffer and die there and rise again for our forgiveness, but on that last day to take us bodily resurrected to be with you and with him for an eternity. We pray your blessing upon us today as we study your word. May your Holy Spirit continue to guide us in that study. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I mentioned this is the first Sunday in Advent today, and so I thought maybe just a few words on the season of Advent that we have entered into. It is, of course, a season of preparation for Christmas, but really much more than that. Uh, the word Advent means coming, and so during Advent, we actually have three different types of comings that we focus upon. The most obvious and the one, I guess, that, that gets the most play uh, is the first time a Christ coming to Mary and to Joseph uh, come into this world incarnate uh, in order to, as we indicated before, go to the cross, suffer, die, and rise once again for our forgiveness so that we might have eternal life. And so a lot of the hymns will have allusions to that first coming of Christ, as will the readings. We'll see how uh, for example, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for the first coming of Christ. Secondly, then, we talk about the coming of Christ to us today in word and sacrament. And uh, we have that uh, most every Sunday here at St. Paul's. In fact, we do have it every Sunday here at St. Paul's. Uh, and how he comes to us in his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Uh, how through water and word in baptism, faith is created to trust and believe in, in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and of course through his word proclaimed. And as he has promised, wherever two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. So that's the second coming that we emphasize during Advent. And finally, the third coming, of course, would be that would be his second coming, actually, when he comes again. Uh, to judge between the living and the dead, coming in all glory and power and might. So those are the three comings that you'll see emphasized in Advent. And as I say, the most predominant of those three is going to be preparing for that first coming of Christ, uh, the miracle of the incarnation of our Savior. Uh, in a lot of churches, you will notice that the uh, color, the liturgical color, has been changed to blue. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it actually was not blue, but it was, uh, in many churches, a, a purple, uh, sometimes matched the Lenten color, and in some churches it was just a little shade different, not quite as deep a purple. And that's due to the fact that uh, Advent at least used to have uh, a little more penitential note to it also, because we would think about the fact that it's because of our sin that Christ Christ's incarnation was necessary, and the fact that he had uh, what well, he had to, he, he chose to humble himself and uh, to be obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so during Advent, we had a little bit of that connected with it as well. And then I think it was in, it might have been in the 1960s to 70s, uh, probably right after the Roman Catholic Church had Vatican II, that this color blue was introduced to emphasize blue is the color of hope. Uh, and that's why you'll see the blue Advent candles, which again has been a, a change over time, I think, in, in some cases for some churches. And, and so the, the sort of the emphasis or the tone, you might say, of Advent has changed a bit. A little less penitential, I think, than it has been in the past. Uh, a little bit more hope, especially uh, 
you know, as we get closer and closer to celebrating our Lord's incarnation. So those are just a few uh, thoughts, maybe, on Advent. Now today, as I said, we'll be looking at the lessons for next Sunday. And next Sunday, one of the key emphases will be the coming of John the Baptist, the one who will prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And we are going to be looking, first of all, though, at the Old Testament lesson, which is Malachi chapter 3. And this is, makes one reference to John the Baptist, uh, and we'll see that. The, you know, the lessons are selected. These lessons didn't come down from Mount Sinai. So these are, have been selected by committees, okay? Uh, well, you could say the lessons did come down when we're dealing with Exodus and so on. But uh, what they do, sometimes they will have a rather obscure connection. Remember I said the Old Testament and the Gospel lessons are the ones that are usually connected, or at least designed to be connected thematically. And so we'll see. There is a connection here with John the Baptist, but it's not a, a big one. You could... You could think, boy, you could have done like Isaiah 40, which is, is quoted in the Gospel lesson. You could have done that for the Old Testament lesson, but they chose to do a little uh, less of a connection. Let's read through. We're going to look at uh, Malachi 3, starting at verse 1 through 7b. And it says here, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who fear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. All right, let's go back and take this apart. Now, uh, next week we are going to not only start at verse 3, verse 1 here uh, at St. Paul's in the Pair, but we're going to back up one verse, which is where we actually think this lesson should have started. This lesson is, a is answering a question that is posed in 2, verse 17. And why in the world 217 wasn't included with this? I guess they didn't want to make a chapter break or span across a chapter for some reason. But those of you who have a Bible, take a look at the previous verse, Malachi 2, verse 17, and I'll read it. Malachi 2, verse 17. And this is the Lord uh, speaking here, Yahweh is speaking. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the, God, the God of justice? So God is speaking here, and he says, you have worn me out. You have wearied me with your questions. And it's as if the people say, well, what questions? How are we, how are we making you weary? And the questions that they are saying, notice the, the question, there's really two of them. Uh, there, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, is that a true statement? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him? No, that's not true, obviously. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And you see, what they, the people were asking at that time is that age-old question. Jeremiah asked it as well. Why are the evil people prospering? 
Why are those who are not God's people prospering and doing so well? And it's sort of sarcastically saying that those who do evil must be good in the sight of the Lord. Or, where is the God of justice? Don't we feel that way sometimes as well, right? Uh, we look around us and it seems as though, you know, at times sin and evil seem to be doing quite well in this world. And kind of, you know, where, come on God, let's, let's do something here. Uh, let's, let's get this taken care of. And that's what God's people were actually complaining about here in the book of Malachi. Uh, this is written about 400 years before Christ would walk the earth. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, I sometimes have joked that it's Malachi, it's not Malachi, the Italian prophet. It's Malachi, okay? It is the last book of the Old Testament. And so God's people are complaining here that God come and do something. Well, in 400 years, he's going to, okay? And, and uh, he, now he responds. So our text now is God's response to their uh, questions and their accusations. You know, the, the, you must, God, you must think that the evil people are good. And come on, where are you? Now here's God's response, starting in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. Well, who would be the messenger who's going to come first? John the Baptist, right? So here's, here is that reference to John the Baptist. I behold. So when a, you know, when a prophet says behold, that means take notice. You know, here we go. Uh, you know, listen here. Uh, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, the gospel lesson is going to be we're going to be seeing how John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll talk about that baptism of repentance and what that actually entailed and what it was. But he's the one who kind of goes out there ahead of time. He's the emissary, you might say, the one who gets the people ready for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of God, actually. Uh, here on this earth. And uh, remember, uh, John the Baptist, remember how he is related to Jesus? They are cousins, right, through Mary and Elizabeth, six months apart in terms of their respective pregnancies, uh, with Elizabeth first and then uh, uh, Mary following six months later. Okay? Um, so, he is sent literally to prepare the way, to announce the Messiah is coming. Uh, going on, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So this God whom you seek and say, where are you? He's going to suddenly come to his temple. Now let me ask you this. Let's stop and think about this. So if we think about Christ here as the Lord who's going to come to his temple, when did Christ come to the temple? What's the first time? Let's go with that. What's the first time? How old was he? No, oh, before that. Eight days, right? Eight days. He comes to be circumcised and named. Okay? And uh, remember, that's where uh, Simeon, who had been told he would not uh, uh, depart until he had seen the Lord's salvation and has uh, that beautiful nunc dimittis that, uh, that we sing today. And so eight days, there he is in his temple, right? Uh, comes to the temple. Then, the time he's, he's 12 years old, right? And it's almost comical, you know, that Mary and Joseph uh, both take off to go home, and uh, uh, there's only one problem. They forgot Jesus, right? You ever heard? I've, I've actually heard that happen, where uh, parents have uh, stopped at a rest station on, on the interstate, a uh, rest stop. And I guess they were in multi-vehicles, and they all thought that their child was in the other one, you know, and they took off, and they're down the road before they found out and had to come back. Well, that's exactly what happened. And, and, uh, but not comical is that when they find Jesus, where is he? He's in the temple, and he's there with the rabbis and is, again, focused upon God's Word and the teaching and the study of God's Word, okay? Uh, and then there's an 18-year silent period. The next time we see Jesus, he's 30 years old, and he's coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then we'll see him many times in the temple throughout his three-year remaining earthly ministry 
And in fact, Luke, which is the gospel that we're going to be reading out of for this coming church year now, one of the features of the gospel of Luke is that there's a lot in the temple. Luke has a focus on the temple and Jesus' activity there. So you'll be hearing a lot about that uh, throughout this year. So, again, this, he's, he's going to come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. And there we think that is a reference to Jesus, not to John, but to Jesus as the messenger of this covenant. And notice there, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, so far, this sounds good, doesn't it? This sounds like good news. He's coming. He's going to come to his temple. But notice what happens when we get to verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Huh. Now it sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? You think, okay, good news, he's coming. But who can stand? Who can endure his coming? You almost get a sense of a judgment that's going to be coming here, right? Now the answer that's kind of a rhetorical question, the answer is, which one of us is able to stand in front of the Almighty? None of us, without Jesus Christ. So he is going to come to be both the one, the, the purifier, the one who's eventually going to come in judgment, and he's also the means by which we are purified, right? Through his blood shed on the cross. So who can stand? Rhetorically, nobody can. But notice he's going to come, and uh, for he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Now, a refiner's fire, if we think of somebody who's working with metal, how do they refine, or how did they refine uh, metal, I guess they still do that today, uh, of its impurities? What do they use to refine metal of its impurities and burn off the, the uh, uh, parts you don't want in there, the, the, the uh, other stuff that's in there? Melt, yeah, heat or fire, right? I guess we still do that. I don't know enough about the production of steel, but uh, we have these big uh, cauldrons where you know the steel is heated up, and all the impurities are burned off. And that's the one image that you get here, that this Jesus is going to be like a refiner's fire. You know, he's going to take the dross, you might say, out of the metal. And the other image is like a fuller's soap. Now, this fuller's soap is like a lye soap, L-Y-E soap, okay? And what happens when you put, let's say, a white garment and you put it in the, the lye soap and you scrub it back and forth, what happens to it? White, yeah. So you get the idea, you almost have an image of Isaiah there, you know? Like, your sins are red as crimson, they shall be white as snow, right? And uh, that's the thing. He's, gonna, he's, he's coming as a, the imagery is coming as a great purifier. Okay? And think of sin as, and evil as, you might say, dirt or dirtiness. He comes to refine and to purify. Okay? Uh, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Talked about that sort of. He will purify the sons of Levi, so even the priestly clan will be purified through him and refine... Uh, them like gold and silver and they meaning the sons of Levi again will bring offerings that are righteous to the Lord so what's the implication the offerings that the sons of Levi the priests are burning now are they acceptable to the Lord not now not now but they will be one day and here again it's the whole idea of the only way that anything is acceptable to God is if it's through faith in his son Jesus Christ through the Messiah and so uh, on that day then finally those offerings uh, will be acceptable notice he says as they were in days of old so God's people had strayed away uh, from uh, what they first practiced especially you know if we go way back uh, especially in terms of idolatry before they were taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and worship of false gods and just going through the motions now by the time Jesus is going to walk the earth a whole bunch hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations and laws and the I thought that you know we're doing all these things 
somehow we can make ourselves pleasing in the sight of God, or then God will be pleased with us, just the opposite. You know, he, that here, he, you know, Malachi makes a statement, who can stand? We can't. And God's going to be the one who will send the purifier, the refiner, which, is, which would be Christ. Then verse 5, and here again, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Now here we think we're jumping to the final judgment on the last day. I will be a swift witness against. Now who, who would, what would sorcerers be? Who's a, who's a, or what is a sorcerer? Yeah, could we all say fortune teller? Yeah. Those who uh, follow evil and practice, you might say uh, witchcraft and uh, evil types of things, and uh, look to them for answers. Uh, and, and that was certainly going on back at that time. Uh, you have, uh, well, actually, it's going to be, uh, it's, I don't think this is intended, but there's a connection to our epistle lesson uh, with what happened in Philippi. Uh, Paul, come, Paul and Silas come into town, and there's a woman who is, uh, we think, demon-possessed or working for a sorcerer and tells the future. And Paul uh, casts out the demon, and the people get all mad because he took away their source of income. So there's people practicing that back in Bible times. Are there people practicing this sort of thing today? Yes, absolutely. And I always encourage people, stay away from it. Do not even get near it. Do not open yourself up to it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing. It's a very real thing. The Bible takes, obviously, Satan and demons and evil spirits as, uh, takes them as being uh, very dangerous. And, and it certainly has existed. You know, some people deny that it even exists. So, uh, sorcerers against the adulterers. Okay? Uh, he's coming. Now, this is, again, who, who are the people lined up here for the judgment? Against those who swear falsely. So those who take oaths and swear falsely. By the way, is it wrong to take an oath for Christians? Is it wrong to take an oath? No, not at all. But it is wrong to take an oath and then what? Why? Yeah, swear falsely, right? As if you are telling the truth, obviously. All right? Then, against those... Now, notice here, you get, a, you get a sense of the injustice that was happening back in Malachi's day. Against those who, number one, oppress the hired worker in his wages. So what would that be? How do people oppress the hired worker with their wages? Don't, yeah, don't pay them what they're worth, right? And so you've got that going on. That's group number one. Group number two... Uh, the widow who oppressed the widow and the fatherless. Now, we don't, uh, it's not like this today, but in Bible times, when you were a widow, legally speaking, you were vulnerable. And people could take advantage of you as a uh, woman who's a widow. Uh, Jesus, remember, at one time criticizes the Pharisees for uh, demolishing or taking the houses of widows by a show of right. In other words, they had some legal loophole that they could get the house. And the same thing if you're an orphan or a fatherless. Um, just think about what does Jesus do on the cross as he looks down at John on the cross and says what? Behold to him, behold, uh, referencing Mary, behold your mother, and to her, behold your son. And that has led to the speculation that by that time, perhaps Joseph, for some reason, was out of the picture. Most likely, he died somehow. And that what Jesus was doing was providing for Mary that protection that would uh, keep her from being vulnerable, legally speaking, uh, back in that day. So this, uh, this uh, judgment is going to include those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. So a sojourner would be a, a guest or a traveler. And uh, remember we, uh, boy, some weeks ago, we talked about the provisions that God made in his law even for the traveler and the sojourner. Don't, don't harvest your field all the way up to the edge. Leave some there, right? Don't harvest all uh, the gleanings off the ground. Leave some there for the poor and the traveler. It was God's built-in plan 
uh, for the poor and those who would be traveling. And here, again, you've got people who just push aside the traveler and the sojourner, don't care for them, don't care about them, I should say. And notice there in the bottom line, they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And you know that whole idea of they do not fear me, and fear not, not, not so much in the sense of, you know, certainly could involve this, not, not so much in the sense of fear condemnation or fear physical harm, but they have just no regard for God whatsoever and his power and his might glory. And boy, we have a lot of people like that. No fear, no consideration for God, living life as though there is no God whatsoever, there is no one they need to answer to, that they are their own God, a captain of their own ship. Uh, we just see that so much today uh, in our world. And, you know, back in Luther's day, it seemed like the pendulum was almost on the other side, that the people were so concerned about their sin and about standing before a holy and righteous God and now you, uh, you kind of wish people at least had some uh, recognition of that, right? That there is a judgment to come, and apart from Christ, uh, we are without hope for that judgment. So um, back then, the same thing. They do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Now, let me ask you this. Is that a good thing or a bad thing that God does not change? Good thing, right? If, if God were constantly changing, I'd have to ask myself, well, you know, this Bible, that's what God said back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. I wonder if he still feels that way today, right? How would I know? And so it is a good thing that God does not change. And notice there what that means. He, he, he's also going to say here he doesn't change in his mercy. Therefore, O children of Jacob... Uh, you are not consumed, or you are not destroyed. Why? Because God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that remember, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God says, I do not change, and you almost can read into this, that's the only reason that you aren't consumed, O house of Jacob, you know? You've gone off, he goes on to say, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And the implication is what? Even though you've turned aside from me, I don't change. The promises are still true. That's the only reason you haven't been consumed yet. You know? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You could almost substitute the return to me being sort of what? Repent. Right? In a Lenten theme, repent, turn to me, and I will turn to you. And we'll talk about repenting in just a minute. We get to John the Baptist. Okay? So, we get John the Baptist mentioned here, at least, as the one who's going to prepare the way. We get then the actual messenger of the covenant, who is also the refiner and the purifier, and that, of course, would be Christ. And it ends with a word of judgment at the end. Okay? And a, and a call for repentance, the return... Notice there, even though they have gone astray, God still says to them, return to me. And uh, again, that gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love still wants his people to return to him. Okay? All right, let's stop for a second. Before we go on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to the gospel lesson next because, as I said, they're, they're related. But prior to that, any questions, any comments on Malachi, on the Old Testament reading for next week? All right, let's go to the gospel lesson. This is a long one. So we're going to do the, there's a, well, it could stop at, it could stop at 1 through 14, but we're going to take 15 through 20 also. No extra charge. All right, let's go verse by verse here. Sorry, at verse 1. Uh, and notice, well, we'll get, let's take uh, verses 1 and 2, actually. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
Whoa! You got, uh, now notice here, it, it, you know, when you read this as a, as a scripture lesson, it, it's a little clunky to read from the, from the uh, lectern when you read it in church. But notice here a couple things. Luke, the careful historian here, remember, we didn't look at the start of the Gospel of Luke, but he says he is making, he has researched all things well and is making an orderly account for a gentleman, we believe is a gentleman, most excellent Theophilus, might have been a Roman official, about the things which have occurred in our midst or amongst us. And you can just see the orderliness here. Notice how Luke puts this directly into history. And he is, you know, without saying it, is communicating that this stuff happened, and here is precisely when it happened. And the other implication here is that what's about to happen here, meaning coming of John the Baptist, coming of Christ, has implications for the whole world at this time. Okay? So let's take a look at uh, these guys here. Uh, the, in this great historical detail, Tiberius Caesar began co-reigning with, uh, with Caesar Augustus in about 11 or 12 A.D. So if we are in the 15th year of his reign, what year are we in? 26, 27? Yeah, somewhere around there. And uh, we won't stir up a hornet's nest here, but there was a mistake. There were mistakes made when the calendar was switched over to the Greco-Roman calendar. There is a monk, and I, I should have looked up his name, who has taken the blame for this uh, historically. Poor guy. Uh, you know, it's like when you fumble the kickoff to lose in the football game. This is even bigger than that. Uh, who's taken the fall for this historically? Uh, the Bible is correct in that. Um, all the years that it spells out in Jesus' 33 years of, of age, but he probably, on our Greco-Roman calendar, was probably born about two, uh, the speculation has ranged from two to four B.C., what we consider two to four B.C. And all, all the years are correct in terms of his life and so on, but you can just see this when you read, when you read Luke here. So 26, 27 A.D. on our calendar today, okay? Um, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea. Well, we know a lot, you know, we know a lot about him. He's the one whom uh, Christ is eventually going to stand before. And very reluctantly, Pilate is going to sentence him to be crucified. Herod, now this is Herod Antipas. Um, his father, we know, as Herod the Great. And Herod the Great uh, ruled until about 1 AD and was an incredible builder. If you go to Israel today, you'll have the opportunity to see uh, his residence about seven miles east of Jerusalem, which is incredible. You'll have a chance to see Masada down near the Sea of Gal uh, the uh, Dead Sea, which is an amazing structure. Uh, he is one of the Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Maritime on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, but uh, I could talk for a long time on Herod the Great. Just, uh, we think he was crazy. Uh, we think he uh, suffered from uh, reports that he suffered from leprosy and from elephantitis, so that a part of his body uh, side was, was much larger than others. When he would build these big structures, he would build pools, one right next to the other. And again, we think he had leprosy, so he would jump from pool to pool to pool in order to try and, and soothe his, his leprosy. They would be of different temperatures, and the slaves outside would have a billows to keep the heat on the on the one that would be the boiling, uh, very, very warm, hot water. So anyway, I could go on and on. Oh, one more thing. Uh, his wife was supposed to have been beautiful, and uh, he killed his wife and two of his sons. And his wife, after he killed her, uh, put her in a pool of honey at Caesarea Maritime. If you go there today, you'll see the pool. And so that he could still look at her uh, and uh, her beauty, but she was, uh, he, he thought, was trying to betray her, betray him politically speaking. And uh, this, this guy is one of the most interesting figures in history, really, and an incredible builder. Well, anyway, I digress. 
back back to the back to the lesson. Um, so uh, this this Herod Antipas is one of his sons who ruled uh, Galilee. Then Philip is another one of the sons. Philip is a tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. So that's north and west of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem. And then this guy, Lysanias, we just don't know much about this guy. I don't have much to tell you there. Uh, and he ruled uh, Abilene, north and east uh, area. Uh, during, now, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And remember, Annas was the high priest that they brought Jesus to first after he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on Monday, Thursday evening. And at that time, Annas was no longer the high priest. He was, you might say, the high priest emeritus you know, at that time. Uh, but he still had a lot of clout, even though he wasn't the sitting high priest. A lot of influence. They brought Jesus to him first, and nothing really came of it. And then they take him to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was the sitting high priest when Jesus was crucified. And he's the one who ran the Sanhedrin. Okay? And this was a priestly family. Okay? Annas is the father of Caiaphas, so it was just kind of all in the family. And they ran, they ran the show, religiously speaking, at that time, especially for the Sanhedrin. Now, all that is background now. So Luke puts this directly in history. The word of God came to John. Notice he's very particular here. Son of Zechariah. Notice where does it come? In the wilderness. Isn't it something how whenever big new things are happening with God's people, how often they are where? In the wilderness, right? You got uh, after they are released from their captivity in Egypt, you got them in the wilderness, and God's providing for them. After they get to the borderland and they shrink back in fear, where are they at? Forty years, where are they? In the wilderness, right? And God is, is uh, getting them ready, finally, uh, to come across. Then he jumped to Jesus, and he, after the Jordan River, where does he go for 40 days and 40 nights? In the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan, right? And so you, you get the feeling here, something big is going to happen. And John the Baptist here, the last of the prophets, is out in the wilderness. And notice the word of the Lord comes to him here, out in the wilderness. And then what happens? Let's go to verse 3. And he, that'd be John, of course, went into all the region around the Jordan. Jordan would be, of course, the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. There has been a lot written about what was John's baptism? Notice, it's not a baptism. We, it doesn't say it's a baptism into Christ or a baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian baptism, the way we have it today. And so we think this is simply what it, what it says, that there was a baptism, and it was uh, after and during your repenting of your sin. And this is sort of a preparation now for the coming of Christ. And it seems that we don't have an actual Christian baptism until Jesus gives us the Great Commission and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And then shortly after that, of course, at Pentecost, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So this was a baptism of repentance, but notice it did lead to the forgiveness of sins. That there's a repenting of sin, there's a trust and belief in the Messiah to come, very shortly here, and there is forgiveness of sin. It, it does not appear to be a Trinitarian baptism, uh, as, we, as we would do today, following Christ's command. Okay? So John is out there in the wilderness doing this by the Jordan River. People are coming out. Now, notice here, verse 4, here's where we get the quote from Isaiah 40. That's why I was thinking, why wouldn't Isaiah 40 be the Old Testament lesson? I guess we don't want to hear it twice. Um, it, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, 
and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Kind of a figurative way of speaking here that a special Messiah, the Messiah, is going to come. And you almost get the image that if he were coming down a road, for example, traveling down a road, that it would be made as, as straight and as level as possible for the coming of this great Messiah. Now, if we take that imagery and apply it to our lives, what is John saying to the people? Make straight, spiritually speaking, your life, right? In other words, again, it's that repent for the for the Messiah is coming you know make straight paths uh, to make the way ready for the coming of this great king okay I was reading once that uh, they actually would do this when a great a great leader a great king would come if there were any roads that were in bad shape you know a lot of up and down or bad they would actually go out ahead and prepare the way for the coming of this great worldly leader and spiritually speaking, this is what Isaiah prophesied back 700 years before Christ. Make ready the way for the coming of the Lord. Now let me ask you this. How do we today, in Advent, prepare or make ready the way for the coming of the Lord to us? What do we do? Repent also, right? Same thing. Repent of our sins. And remember I said before that Advent used to have more of a penitential note to it as well. Not so much today, but we make ready the way of the Lord. In verse 6 there, notice that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Sometimes we gloss over that. First of all, the salvation of God is this Messiah and the salvation that he brings. But notice, who does all flesh include? Gentile, not just Jews, but Gentile. And we've already gotten a taste of this in Luke. When Jesus is eight days old, comes to be baptized, what does Simeon say as a part of the non-dominus? A light to lighten the Gentile. Hmm, or the nation, depending on how you translate it. So we're already getting this, that this salvation is not just for the sons of Jacob, sons and daughters of Jacob, this is for all flesh. Okay, it's universal. Now, verse 7. Well, you wouldn't want to have John preaching on Sunday in your church. He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, when we think brood of vipers, first of all, Matthew tells us that these were the Pharisees who were coming out to... Uh, uh, in this instance, anyway. And he refers to them as a brood of vipers. And actually, we think of brood, I think we tend to think of a collection of snakes. It's actually offspring of snakes, is what the word uh, should be translated. So, you offspring of vipers or snakes. Now, uh, what is this a not so subtle reference to, perhaps? Snakes, vipers, Satan, back originally, right? Um, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, how come you're coming out here to me? Who, who warned you to come out here to see me? Now, here comes the repentance. Uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, what is repentance? The word literally means a change of mind, but it is much more than just a change of mind. It's true repentance, we say, as, as Lutherans, is not only that I turn away from my sin, it's like I'm going one way and I turn around and I go the other way, I'm, so, I, I'm, I'm contrite because of my sin, but I also, and this is the very important part, I also believe that there is forgiveness through Christ. In other words, it's not just that I'm sorry for my sin, which is a part of it, but the second part and the very important part is I have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. And there should also be a change in life, shouldn't there? There should be a change in behavior in my life if I'm truly repentant of my sin. And I know that there are people who struggle with addictions and so on. But ordinarily speaking, 
there should be a change in my life. I want to amend my sinful life, right? Um, and then uh, he goes on to say, bear fruits. In other words, what the fruit would be the actions, the, the, the uh, things in your life that are the result of the repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So we get from this, what were the, these Pharisees and other Jews as well, what were they trusting in for their good standing with God? Yeah, we're descendants of Abraham. You get this repeatedly in the Gospels. We're descendants of Abraham. Another time, we've never been slaves to anyone. How is it, Jesus, you say you'd be set free? Right? We have any people today, you think, that, that uh, in, in churches even, who might be relying on their, on their uh, spiritual uh, bloodlines, you might say? Descendants, every you know, my grand, my great grandparents were charter members of this congregation, right? Or boy, uh, you know, my, uh, you get some people trace it, you know, my my ancestors came over, uh, in our cases Lutherans, with the Saxon immigrants who came over, and you know, we thank God for that. That's great, but does that do anything for you in your salvation? Not at all. Okay, so do not begin to say we have Abraham as our father. And notice the ne uh, next uh, statement. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Stone, of course, would be an inanimate object, as Pastor Thompson mentioned in his sermon. And you wonder if Jesus is pointing the stones right there on the ground does this. God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham. And I read something else that I thought I'd never heard this before this week in reading in uh, uh, Arthur Just, who is, uh, uh, he wrote the Concordia Commentary on Luke, that the, uh, the Jew would think of the Gentiles as inanimate objects, like rocks or stone. That's the way they thought of it. I don't wonder. There's some Gentiles standing around also. And Jesus says, from these very stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. And boy, that would have that would have incensed uh, the Jews who were standing. Okay? It's very, very possible. And in fact, Paul makes a big point of that in Galatians, that we now all who have faith in Christ are children of Abraham. Okay? And so then, uh, going on, verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. So you get the idea that, what, what's the point here? The axe is already at the, at the base of the tree. What, what's going to happen pretty soon? The tree's going to be chopped down. In other words, it's an imagery for judgment, right? It's coming. Um, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You get the sense of the judgment there, right? And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So you can see that this preaching of John the Baptist has cut them to the heart. And they ask, it's almost like asking a Lutheran question, what does this mean now, right? And he answered them, uh, so in other words, John is going to describe now what are the fruits of repentance? What, what are the fruits that lead to uh, forgiveness? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Now, a tunic was like an inner, not the outer garment, but it was right below the cloak or the outer garment. So whoever has two, if you're, if you're truly a follower of God, if you've repented of your sin, you've got two. What do you do with one of them? Share with somebody who has need, right? And notice it's going to get even worse as we go on. It's kind of an ascending, uh, ascending scale. Whoever has food is to do likewise, so share that, that food. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now, how were the tax collectors viewed at that time, back then, Bible times, by the Jews? Not, not good. They didn't have pictures of tax collectors in their homes, let's put it that way, okay? They were the kind of the, uh, pictured as selling out uh, to Rome. They had a reputation, at least, for uh, cheating people and not collect, collecting more than they should and pocketing the rest. So the tax collectors came and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So you get the idea of like you've been doing, right? <laughs> then verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats, 
or false accusation and be content with your wages. So we get from that, what were the soldiers doing? Exactly that, right? So if this is what a Christian life looks like. You share your tunic, you share your food. You don't, uh, you don't uh, cheat people uh, when it comes time to pay taxes. You don't extort money from people by threats and false accusations uh, and so on. Now, just a little aside here. Luther makes a big deal of these verses, verses uh, especially 13 and 14. For in the Middle Ages, saying that a Christian, a Christian, can be a tax collector, a soldier. In other words, a Christian from the kingdom of the right hand can serve in the left-hand kingdom. This is quite a controversy in the Middle Ages. Luther wrote a tract titled, Can Soldiers Too Be Saved? And his answer was yes. And he quotes this verse in uh, quite a bit for that. It's not, not the main thrust of the verse, but Luther uses it to say, hey, look at, uh, you know, Jesus, or uh, John the Baptist acknowledges here that soldiers can uh, serve, just serve properly. Verse 15, and the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So he has got such a following out there that people are beginning to wonder, is this the guy? And in uh, 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, namely there in the Jordan River. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this many times is taken to be a reference to Pentecost, which is to come. Uh, there's also reference, perhaps, to that purifying nature of the fire. The fire part is the part we're kind of sometimes a little, uh, little concerned or a little confused about. But verse 17, now notice the judgment here. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. The wheat would be the righteous uh, people. And, but the chaff, meaning the unrighteous, he will burn with, notice here, unquenchable fire. That's a clear reference to hell. That the fire cannot be put out. Okay? Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news say, well, it doesn't sound like too much good news <laughs> at the end of there, but good news, the repentance and the forgiveness that comes to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, this is the, again the Tetrarch of Galilee, who had been reproved by him for Her uh, Herodias, his brother's wife. John spoke up against the marriage of Herod, uh, of, uh, Herod to Herodias, his brother's wife. And as it says here, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. So uh, John was acting just like a prophet. He was speaking up against, in this case, Herod, and all the evil things he had done. And notice there, and this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And this is going to be the beginning of the end for John the Baptist's life. He gets locked up in prison. We all know the story ends up actually being beheaded. Uh, when uh, Herod's daughter comes in to dance at a party, and Herod makes the mistake of saying, whatever you want, I will give it to you, even up to half the kingdom. And then uh, she goes and asks uh, Herodias, and uh, what should I ask for? Herodias asks for John, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, that's what ends up happening. Okay? And it's from prison that John's going to send his disciples. John had disciples. He's going to send them to Jesus. And remember, that what's the question they're going to bring to Jesus? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we expect another? Now, things weren't looking too too much like maybe they thought they should be looking. John's in prison, and uh, things weren't going so well at that time. We've got about five minutes left. One thing I wanted to mention that, uh, again, I just came across more recently. I'd never thought of this before. But in the Gospel of Luke, you have, it's amazing the way you have a parallel between first, what happens to John the Baptist, and next, what happens to Christ? Just think about it. You've got Gabriel coming to Elizabeth and saying, uh, you're going to, or to John, I'm sorry, to John, uh, to uh, Zechariah, saying, you're going to conceive, you know, uh, Elizabeth's going to conceive and bear a son. And then you get the Holy Spirit later on coming to whom? 
to Mary and to Joseph, saying, you're going to conceive and bear a son, right? Then you get the circumcision and naming of, uh, you get John in the temple, you get Jesus in the temple, uh, you get John out in the wilderness preaching, you get Jesus traveling around and preaching, and as a result of that preaching, John the Baptist gets locked up and killed, and as a result of Jesus preaching, what happens? He gets locked up and killed. The difference is, Jesus rises again on the third day. Right? I never thought of that before, but it's amazing how in Luke there's this parallel. It happens. It happens to John the Baptist first, then it happens to Jesus. This goes back and forth. It's a play back and forth all the way through the gospel, or up until John dies, of course. Okay? All right. I think we're going to stop there. Uh, Philippians is a wonderful section, and uh, Paul expresses his great, uh, um, not only admiration, but affection for the Christians at Philippi. Uh, and you can just see the close connection that he has with them there in spite of what occurred while he was there, at least the first time. And um, so I, but I think rather than launch into that now, uh, we'll be sending it back to KFDO here in just a second, and they'll play some music until 1030. Well, let's conclude then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.